Okay, I'm going to stop my share now and welcome everyone to Colloquium. Let me just check. Yes, okay. Um, thank you everyone for joining us today. We're welcoming Karen Mashke and she is a, oh, we still have a couple people falling in. Um, we'll get them admitted. She's a research scholar at the Hastings Center and she's also um, an editor of ethics and human research. And her expertise is on the ethical, regulatory, and policy issues involving the development and assessment and use of new biomedical technologies. So she is a perfect person to join us for our colloquium. And I am just going to let her take it away with her talk on chimeric research, non-human animals containing human animal human cells. Um, so Karen, if you'd like to share your screen, um, we can let you get started. I will say, um, as you're getting this up and running, I'll let everyone know um, the format. We'll let Karen speak. And if you have a question that you would like me to read at the end, go ahead and put it in the chat. Otherwise, save your questions um, until our discussion session after the presentation and use the raise your hand function and we'll call on you directly to ask Karen your questions. Okay. Great, um, thanks. Are you seeing the slide, the, the full slide? Not the full slide, we're seeing the- Okay, um, sorry, let me go back and redo it. I am, um, there we go. Perfect, looks good. Okay. So um, thank you very much for this invitation. And I wanna thank um, Don Rodriguez Ward who helped set everything up. Um, I'm sorry I couldn't be in person. I had hoped to be able to do that, but I've got multiple commitments that make it hard to arrange travel. So thank you for accommodating this on Zoom. I only have three slides today. They're introductory slides because I'm trying to be minimal on slides and I'm gonna read from prepared document that I have. Um, the Hastings Center, in case um, some of you haven't heard about it, is a bioethics research institute in Garrison, New York, which is 70 miles north of New York City. And we're the founding institute in bioethics, um, Dr. Uh, Dan Callahan and Dr. Will Galen, both deceased more recently, Dr. Galen, um, a few weeks ago, founded the organization in 1969 and basically um, seeded the field of bioethics, which is now pretty much entrenched in um, academic medicine and many arts and sciences programs um, across the United States. So I wanna thank you for the opportunity to uh, this presentation and um, share with you some findings and insights from the project that I'm gonna talk about. A Couple of quick acknowledgements that I need to go over. This uh, project that I'm gonna talk about <clears throat> and um, the presentation and um, educational and publication materials was supported by research from the National Human Genome Research Institute, its ethical, legal, social implications program. And um, the PIs that I am a co-PI with were Josephine Johnston from the Hastings Center and In Su Hoon from Case Western Reserve University, who is now at Boston Science Museum. And co-investigators include Carolyn Newhouse, my colleague at Hastings, and Patricia Marshall at Case Western. And then we had several project managers that I want, also want to acknowledge, you'll see on the slide. And the standard disclaimer, uh, nothing that I'm saying here uh, necessarily represents the views of my colleagues, uh, although I'm using our report, but I have my own views that they may not share and our views in the report and um, today uh, do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Institutes of Health. So today's focus is going to be on research involving the transfer of human stem cells into embryonic uh, 
um, into, I'm sorry, into embryos of non-human animals and or into living animals or what we refer to as postnatal non-human animals. I'm gonna give you just a really quick summary about the research activities that uh, we did under this three-year grant, which actually got extended partly due to because of COVID. I'm gonna talk a little bit about terminology real quickly. The project's focused on human stem cells. And then the bulk of the presentation is on what we discovered about concerns about chimeric research. And I'm gonna try hopefully if we have enough time to summarize five of the project's 10 recommendations. I'm gonna go out of screen share. And if I turn a little bit to my side, it's because I do have some extra notes next to me that might pull me a little bit away from the screen. So our research activity, this was a three-year NIH-funded grant. And what we did was we created an interdisciplinary work group of the PIs as well and the COI, as well as um, we invited, I think, 17 or 18 um, people from uh, various backgrounds and expertise to be on a work group. We had scientists who were actually engaged in human stem cell research with non-human animals. We had uh, uh, three of, of really the leading experts in the US and um, two of them are very well known internationally in this, in this field. We had members of relevant oversight bodies, primarily from what are called embryonic stem cell research over committees and from institutional animal care and use committees, often referred to as IACUCs. I'm just gonna use the generic terms, uh, embryonic stem cell research oversight committees and animal research oversight committees. We had academic researchers um, on the group in philosophy, law, bioethics, and non-human animal studies. And over the three years, we undertook an interdisciplinary analysis to investigate the motivating factors for this project and to identify inconsistencies and uncertainties about ethical, conceptual, and oversight dimensions of chimeric research. In doing that, we looked at existing guidelines, both in the US, we looked at which they're not a lot actually, um, but we looked at about a, probably a half a dozen or more reports from the US and other um, jurisdictions. For example, the UK has a major report that came out around 2011, I believe, um, that bioethics commissions in various countries like Denmark, Singapore, and other places issued reports on this kind of research. And um, we looked at NIH funding guidelines and requirements, and we looked at some of the ac academic literature that was relevant, both in terms of the academic literature in bioethics and social sciences, but also the scientific literature <clears throat> about this research to see if um, people had talked about some of the ethical and policy issues. And we examined a sample of more than 20,000 comments that were submitted to the National Institutes of Health in response to a um, notice that was posted about the NIH's thinking about potential funding for this research and not funding some of this kind of research and about a steering committee that it proposed to help the director and other leaders at the NIH think about ethical issues that might arise with this kind of research. And we conducted 35 audio taped interviews with relevant scientists and members of relevant oversight committees to better understand some of the issues that this research raises and 
what the strengths and challenges are of current oversight approaches. To our knowledge, this is the first empirical approach in terms of interviewing these folks. And that um, short essay in our, uh, what, what is called our special report that was published with the Hastings Center report recently, which is one of the other journals that um, the Hastings Center publishes in addition to ethics and human research. There's an article in that, a special report from Patricia Marshall and Caitlin Craig that summarizes one piece of the um, findings of the interviews. So really quickly, I wanna talk about terminology so we understand what I'm using and what we decided in the report. We use the term non-human animals and we from the very beginning decided that was important because we wanna always flag when we're talking about research with non-human animals that humans are, are also animals and um, research is conducted with the animals called humans. <laughs> so we wanted to make a clear distinction always that we're talking about research with non-human animals. We also struggled a lot with the term chimera. We went back and forth on whether to use this term or not. And um, the National Academies of Sciences actually issued a report about a year or two ago in which they also talked about this term. It's buried deeply in the scientific literature and it's the term that scientists use. It's typically associated, however, with media and public imagination about monsters, mythological creatures. But it, from a scientific perspective, um, there's a long history of scientists mixing cells from different non-human animals, um, mixing cells with pigs and chickens or chickens and rodents, and um, now mixing human cells with the cells uh, with non-human animals. And that term chimera is what they use to apply to all organisms that carry cell populations derived from two or more genetically distinct sources. So they have very scientific use of that term and it's been used for decades. We decided that we would use the adjective chimeric uh, preceded by the type of research and the type of non-human animal that's being used. So for example, if it's a non-human animal embryo, we use the term chimeric embryo or chimeric non-human animal embryo or chimeric non-human animal or chimeric non-human postnatal animal to flag the nature of the research as opposed to the kinds of images and um, creatures that um, have been discussed in mythology and often in the media. The media often to get people to click on, show pictures of monsters. And we wanted to get away from that and really focus on the science because it's the science that's important in terms of the ethical um, potentially ethical issues, uh, problematic maybe down the road, and also the kind of policy approaches to responding to this research. We also focused on a little bit in the report, this issue of um, the term humanization and humanized. Again, scientists use these terms regularly to talk about animal models or models of non-human animals that they've developed in the laboratory that contain human cells. And these can be different kinds of human cells, but they're developed to uh, as disease models to study how human cells work in living environments or not, and what that means. And then also to study um, uh, the potential um, medical treatments, drug and biologics that um, might then work in actually uh, human organisms, us, um, humans. And so they use those terms, uh, again, frequently um, to signify that they've created these laboratory disease models. Again, the media often uses those terms in ways that suggest that these um, 
chimeric entities um, are actually like humans when in fact they're not. Although we're going to talk about this later about future research. So again, we've actually recommended um, in our first recommendation in the report that we be more careful with the use of the term chimera. And we talk about chimeric um, embryos or postnatal animals. Uh, we talk and we also um, argue that we should be careful when we're talking about in vitro re research, petri dish research versus actual um, in, in uh, vivo research with living non-human animals. And we also ask that people avoid using the term humanization or humanize and really talk more about what exactly the nature of the research is. So for example, we might say that um, the research involves the insertion of human cells in a non-human animal's brain or in a non-human animal's embryo. And we're looking at, or the scientists are looking at what happens when those cells are introduced into those biological entities. So that's the first recommendation. And I wanted to clear that up so you understand why I'm using certain terms and not using other terms. The other thing I wanna also point out real quickly is that we focused on human stem cells and not all human cells in general, although the report and our recommendations apply pretty much to any kind of human cells. The reason we focused specifically on human stem cells is because it's possible that the effects of these cells on non-human animals could be more systemic and more unpredictable than effects of more specialized human, human cells. And that's because the research, the direction of the research in the last few years and where it's moving is with the use of human and pluripotent stem cells, which are either induced from human stem cells um, that don't have pluripotency, like skin cells, or from human embryonic stem cells, which are pluripotent cells. And so we wanted to focus on where the science is going. We also um, recognized when we did our background research that the bioethics literature is fairly heavily focused on the use of human stem cells and some of it on human pluripotent stem cells. Um, and that's where some of the issues and concerns come up about ethical issues and how to deal with those issues and, and policy and oversight issues. And then also the International Society for Stem Cell Research, ISSCR, I pronounce it as ISCAR, but I don't know if others do that, has issued a couple of times guidelines, most recently updated about a year ago, maybe, um, focusing on uh, stem cell research, human stem cell research with non-human animals. There's a section in that report, but especially on pluripotent and multipotent stem cells or their derivatives. And these cells are the kind that can uh, multiply and also that can become any kind of cell in the body. And so they're very important cells and they have implications for what that means when they're used with non-human animals. Again, though, some of the research that has been of concern to the public and even um, policymakers has not always been cells that are stem cells. For example, there's research being done with human neuron cells and human glial cells um, inserted into the brains of rodents and um, possibly even non-human primates that does raise concerns. So I think our findings do have implications for the non-stem cell type research that's being done with non-human animals. So what is the science quickly and why? And then what were the concerns that we identified and, and 
how did we sort of think about those concerns and come up with some recommendations? As I mentioned already, some of the research is in vitro, mixing cells in petri dish, some of it's in vivo. I'll give you an example of um, some of the in vivo experiments in a minute um, that have to do with some of the concerns. But why do scientists do this kind of research? And as with all research um, involving non-human animals, basically, they're trying to learn how human cells behave in a living environment. And um, similarly, when researchers do research with non-human animals and um, are testing new drug compounds, they're trying to find out how those, how those materials work in um, non-human animals as models to get an understanding of their safety and efficacy um, before they might go into human clinical trials with those those biological compounds or other kinds of biologics like vaccines. Um, they also do this research with non-human animals and stem cells to develop more accurate models, models of human disease. This is um, particularly true now in the neurological realm. There's a lot of research that's starting to look at uh, models of uh, human disease using human stem cells with non-human primates um, in terms of neurological diseases and disorders, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, and autism. Um, looking at what, what they can find um, in terms of what happens when the human cells are inserted into the brains or the central nervous system of non-human animals. And then possibly, which I'll come to in a minute, um, to create inexpensive sources of human eggs and embryos for research. That's um, another potential goal. And then a fourth uh, goal of the research is to possibly develop sources of tissues and organs in non-human animals that are compatible for transplantation into humans. This has often been referred to um, as blastocyst complementation research. The goal of this research is that um, at the blast blastocyst stage, and now perhaps even at other stages of early embryo development, which is what the blastocyst stage is, that using genetic techniques, um, which is very scientific oriented and I'm not the expert on, but using genetic techniques at this early stage of a non-human animal's embryo um, to insert human pluripotent stem cells and to genetically alter the organ development of a non-human animal might actually result after implanting a non-human animal embryo that has human stem cells that were inserted at the early stage and planting it into the sow of a, a pig, a female pig, to gestate a fetus. Um, one of the goals and hypotheses is that the fetus will present or, or develop an organ um, that may be targeted for development through this genetic manipulation with the human embryonic, uh, human pluripotent stem cells, that the organ of interest, let's say a kidney, will have all, will be all human cells or enough human cells that will make the organ compatible for transplantation into a human. And by compatible, that means a number of things that the human won't immediately reject the organ because it's reading it as a foreign organ. So you want to have the human cells perhaps being read by the human um, in a way that they won't reject that organ. 
and also other kinds of compatibility, histocompatibility and other issues that come up when humans reject an organ from another human. So the hypothesis is um, um, that perhaps with this technique, the organ in the animal will be harvested for human transplantation. Um, there's been a little bit of research in this area. There's been some that's been done with uh, pigs and uh, cattle in Spain. And um, the results showed that the human cells did actually proliferate in the organ. The organ um, was, was harvested early on. Uh, the fetus was harvested early on in the organ. And so uh, we don't have a lot of we don't have a lot of evidence yet about what it would mean to bring a fetus to, to term and have this organ, but that's a theory. And that's some of the research that was of concern to the National Institutes of Health in the US and others because the, of the issue about um, what might happen when human pluripotent stem cells are in these animal fetuses and actually might travel to the central nervous system in the brain. I'm gonna to come to that in a minute. So, Holding that for a second, I want to just summarize quickly some of the general concerns about research with non-human animals and human stem cells, and then I'm going to focus a little bit more on the neurological issue. So there's always concern about using non-human animals in research, and as many of you probably know, there are a lot of people who object categorically to any kind of research with non-human animals, and we're aware of that, and we had, we talked about that in the report, and we acknowledge that as an important ethical issue and policy issue that we always have to be mindful of and scientists must be mindful of. Um, there's also opposition on the part of some people to research that involves what we would refer to as crossing species boundaries. Some of that opposition comes out of religious convictions about what you might call an ordained moral order of there are humans and there are non-humans and the two shall never meet. Others raise the issue in a little bit of a different way. It might actually come from a secular moral argument that we just shouldn't we shouldn't mess with what is considered nature, even though that viewpoint might not come from a religious viewpoint. But it's a it's a viewpoint that um, there are certain ways of the universe and nature, and we shouldn't mess with that. There are also some folks who are opposed to the use of human embryonic stem cells or their derivatives in your research. Um, scientists have been trying to move away from the use of human embryonic stem cells in this research because of the concerns and because of the limitations on the derivation of those cells in the US and funding re restrictions um, and have moved to using induced human pluripotent stem cells. But human embryonic stem cells are probably being still being used in this research and many people oppose it because of their moral convictions about their belief that human embryos are actually have moral standing enough to prohibit them in research. And then there are concerns about the neurological effect. And I use this term broadly. I'll talk about it a little bit more um, in terms of the kinds of issues that we identified and that come up in the discussions and the policy issues. Um, but the neurological effects of human stem cells on the brain or central nervous system or the, the non-human animal in general, in terms of what that might mean. And these concerns have come up primarily um, 
in discussions about, well, what would it mean for a non-human animal to have human cells that migrate to its brain or that actually are directly injected into the brain uh, for specific kinds of neurological research? And the literature, you know, is, is uh, fairly rich about possibilities. And the media, again, tends to sometimes over-dramatize this research um, by talking about, is the mouse a human? Um, is the pig going to be a human? Is the pig going to make, you know, human kinds of behaviors? And while, you know, hypothetically that down the road may be possible at the current stage of research, you know, there's no evidence that that is happening. Although we're going to talk about in a minute um, what we want to think about in terms of the research. And the scientists in our study pointed out that, um, and, and some in the literature have pointed out that the issue of human cells in an animal doesn't necessarily mean that the non-human animal becomes something like a human. And it's very difficult to talk about those issues in terms of moral standing of animals and in terms of what does it mean to have those human cells in terms of changes to the non-human animal. And that's where we, we, we find some of the difficulty of talking about the moral status of non-human animals and also talking about what we mean by animal welfare in the non-human animal research context. And so we talked quite a bit about this in our report, um, which, which really led us to um, our second and fourth recommendations. And that is the first recommendation was terminology. But the second recommendation is that we came to the conclusion from our project that animal welfare is a primary ethical issue of chimeric research and thus should be a focus of ethical and policy analysis, as well as the governance and oversight of this research. And why did we come to this conclusion is what I wanna sort of talk about quickly. Um, and that's because much of the ethical analysis about chimeric research has focused on the derivation and use of human stem cells, including from um, human embryos. And it's focused on crossing species boundary boundaries and on possible neurological changes, um, making the human cells perhaps more human-like. Human -like. We argue that, the that these are important issues and we talk about them and we believe they need to be addressed continually as the science moves forward. But we contended that attention should shift to the issue of animal welfare in the context of current um, regulatory and legal guidelines involving and, and laws and regulations involving research with non-human animals. And we make that shift and we argue for that shift because chimeric research is fundamentally about research with non-human animals who have interests of their own grounded in their sentience. And so our recommendations have that, have that contextual shift <laughs> built into them. That was recommendation number two. Recommendation number four is that researchers conducting chimeric studies should systematically assess the behavior of non-human animal subjects to detect, monitor, and report any novel changes, including behavioral changes that might indicate novel or unexpected forms of pain, suffering, or lack of flourishing that might be caused by human stem cells, especially if the cells are in the non-human animal's brain or central nervous system. 
So how did we come to this conclusion and why? And again, um, we found that there obviously are already animal welfare laws and regulations in place and institutions that are conducting research with non-human animals are required to comply with those laws and regulations and even perhaps additional institutional requirements. And we learned from our um, animal research experts who are on animal research ethics oversight committees at various institutions in the country that you know standard monitoring is required as a part of the regulatory requirement to conduct research with non-human animals. There are very explicit requirements about sizes of um, if they're in enclosed environments, whether they're cages or in indoor, larger indoor environments or outside environments. There are very specific requirements about pain and the use of medications to alleviate pain. Um, but we also found that little is known about whether the existing methods for assessing the welfare of non-human animals that are required by laws, regulations, and institutional policies are actually sufficient for addressing the kinds of concerns that people have about non-human animals with human stem cells that might exhibit atypical species behavior as a result of those stem cells. And particularly in the neurological context of research, as that research progresses and goes forward and maybe becomes much more sophisticated in terms of the types of human cells that are inserted into the brain or that might um, migrate to the brain. It's not clear that there are sufficient methods in place yet to monitor those animals, to detect and look for um, the kind of welfare impact of human stem cells on those non-human animals, especially as, we, as I just said, human neural cells or their derivatives. Our experts on our um, working group told us that they feel confident in their institutions at least that the veterinarians and other animal welfare monitors at their institutions are monitoring the non-human animals um, in standard drug studies and device studies in ways that they believe are, are sufficient to meet current regulatory requirements. But um, some of those folks are not doing chimeric research at their institutions and they, you know, talked about with us and, and we discussed this in the report that we, we actually think there needs to be more attention given to this issue if in fact chimeric research is being done at institutions. And that led us to recommendations seven and eight for um, enhanced or improved oversight at the institutional level and at the national level. So recommendation seven is that within institutions, we argue that oversight committees that review chimeric studies should establish channels of communication and consider sharing expertise, perhaps by sharing committee staff members, that there should be procedures in place for communicating between committees so that committees, I'm sorry, can consult each other on matters of overlapping instance, uh, interest. And mechanisms should be in place to track chimeric research protocols involving this research so that institutions can routinely assess the challenges the research poses now and maybe in the future, 
as well as any gaps in oversight at the institutional level. And um, institutions can then proactively decide whether these gaps are acceptable or whether existing oversight committees should assume responsibility. And the reason we came to these conclusions for recommendation number seven is that oversight is siloed in terms of chimeric research. If pluripotent stem cells are being obtained from human embryos, which means that they're being obtained from human donors with their consent, then Institutional review boards that oversee research with humans are involved at that level of the derivation of those cells. And they may also be, well, they probably will be involved um, if cells are being taken from living humans, for example, skin cells, to induce those skin cells to uh, put those cells into non-human animals. So that's the human subjects research context. Stem cell research oversight committees look at um, protocols for research with human stem cells. And many also, the origin of those committees was human embryonic stem cells, but many now also have expanded their remit to include oversight of research with induced pluripotent stem cells. So those committees will be focused on the stem cell, what kinds of cells, where were they obtained and how are they gonna be used? And then the animal research oversight committees will be examining protocols to research with non-human animals. So if there's a scientist who's obtaining induced pluripotent stem cells from living humans and going to insert those cells into non-human animals, that scientist will possibly have to go to three oversight committees, institutional review board, his or her institution, institution's research, uh, stem cell research oversight committee, and his or her institution's animal research oversight committee. Reasons why they are siloed, um, regulatory and policy and ethical reasons. But if in fact the research with non-human animals and human stem cells actually does eventually lead to the kinds of concerns that people have about the cognition and potential atypical pain and suffering in the non-human animal, those siloed oversight committees raise some concerns about whether or not there will be sufficient oversight of the chimeric animal. And so we argue then at the institutional level, as I just said, for better communication across committees. And in fact, I, at least one and possibly two of our work group members did mention that um, they actually talked to those committees um, in the non-human um, stem cell research context with non-human animals. But they also realized and, and agreed that um, there could be better communication going forward with chimeric research. And our, our project eight recommendation about oversight and governance is that um, we made the recommendation that there should be better communication across institutions at the national level and also um, better discussion at the national level. So we called for a national forum that should be regularly convened where representatives of US research institutions that are conducting chimeric research with um, human stem cells should be convened to discuss ethical issues, governance and oversight challenges that we already have identified and that may arise with this kind of research. And um, 
that these discussions should really include important um, emphasis on the welfare of the non-human animals that contain human cells. And we came to this conclusion because we think that having a national forum of some kind that meets regularly can identify emerging ethical challenges and facilitate sharing of useful information across committees and at a national level. And um, specifically, if concerns actually become more pronounced about neurological changes, then these uh, oversight and science experts can actually think ahead about what to look for and be prepared on how to respond. And being prepared about how to respond might actually mean down the road that limitations should be placed on the research. We're not advocating that now, and we don't know that that would actually happen. We actually included in this and some other recommendations, uh, actually documenting more systematically the kind of research that's being done and documenting whether or not there are changes to these chimeric anim non-human animals. Um, and we, we actually argue for um, more publication of these, these matters in the scientific literature alerting other scientists to things that are being observed, whether changes are happening or not, but to build that into the literature so that we start to have a literature trail of what's happening when we do this kind of research with non-human animals. Um, and that's a part of our other piece of uh, recommendation number eight, that there should be some kind of centralized information gathering at the national level with forum and also in the literature with the goal, if the research continues to move forward, especially in the neurological context, that um, there can be ways to facilitate the development of consistent approaches across institutions to develop a body of best practices. So I'm at 1240 and I was asked to try to keep this to 30 minutes, which I came close to. And um, there is a lot more I could say, but I wanna stop here and let's see if people have questions um, want to make some comments or anything that I can help clarify? Okay, yes, um, we do have a question in the comments from Fred Gould, which I will read. And just to remind everyone, if you'd like me to read the question, put it in the chat. If uh, you want to ask your question, use the raise your hand function and I'll call on you. Um, we found that that works the best for managing this part of the um, colloquium. Okay, Fred Gould says, Karen, very interesting talk. I imagine that you have considered the gap between the concerns that society has for animals in laboratory settings versus the same animals in the wild or on farms. Could you discuss your thoughts on this and whether the level of concern is qualitatively different for chimeric systems and other research on lab animals? So I, I want to clarify um, my understanding that when scientists talk about laboratory animals, they're also talking about animals who would be outdoors. So are you, is the clarification that I'm asking about um, laboratory animals in research and animals for other reasons that are being used for other reasons? I just need a clarification on that. Um, I'll, I'll just comment. I, I didn't recognize this differentiation. So do you think there's a differentiation it, both for the chimeric approaches and for the regular research, whether those are in laboratory or on farms or elsewhere. Well, research with animals on farms would be they would be considered 
animals in research, you know, so they're not in a building, but there's, to my understanding, if you're conducting research with non-human animals who are in herds, and I know that from my xenotransplantation study with regard to genetically modified pigs, they are still required to meet the standards of the regulations. So So the uh, real question was mostly about the difference, you know, that you see between those kind of concerns and the way society treats animals that are not part of a research project. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, we we had animal studies people on our project and you know any and um even in my xenotransplantation project, which is about animal organs for humans, the context is still, you know, the use of non-human animals to benefit humans. And we do that, or scientists do that in a number of different ways. And you know, that always rubs up against the discussions about, well, humans use non-human animals for food, they use them for um, home products and clothing. And, and so we did flag that. Um, and we and our, some of our writers, um, Jeff Sebo and Brendan Parent, who are from the animal studies world, wrote an essay about that. Um, we did flag all those issues because they're important. What um, And we didn't get to the granular distinctions, I think, in the way that you're asking. Um, we focused more on wanting to really point out that Research with chimeric, research with non-human animals and human stem cells is not just about the ethical issues of using human cells. It's fundamentally about using non-human animals. Um, and so we needed to start talking about what that means because there, there might be different implications when we're talking about the use of human stem cells, particularly human pluripotent stem cells, and what that means for the potential changes to the non-human animal which likely would not happen to non-human animals, you know, on farms being bred for food and products. So I'm hoping I clarified that for you. Yeah, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Karen, uh, this is Perry Perry Hackett. I'm actually in Minnesota and I I found your talk uh, very stimulating. The the question that I have is, we have humanized animals, humanized mouse uh, models for all kinds of immunological research clearly transcend where you're uh, starting from right here and even winding up. And it, it seems pretty clear to me that with all the proposals of auto transplantation that people are are wanting to achieve and for which uh, hemopoietic cells may be possible right now, but certainly not multicellular uh, organs with various uh, differentiated cell types that that are inside them uh, has become another matter. But putting in uh, liver stem cells into pigs Mm -hmm. and the like, this is an ongoing uh, actual production. It seems to me that where you're really wanting to go, but not quite biting the bullet is that when an old man like me wants to get new brain cells, he wants to go to a pig and begin harvesting them just before birth. uh, And it'll be in a pig where we've, uh, actually inactivated the pig genes and then substituted, uh, of course, uh, 
pluripotent stem cells uh, in, in the blastocysts under the technique of blastocyst complementation. That's being done by a number of uh, private companies, of course, that don't need to go through NIH. You're absolutely right. Yeah. No, so, you're, you're absolutely so, right. And so bite the bullet on on this. And, and so, uh, yeah. So you're right. Uh, I will. I will uh, do my apology. Um, so when we when you're right, and I'm going to do a plug for my other project because they intersect. So the, the motivation for this grant proposal was that the LC program at NHGRI puts out you know calls for you know they have a call for whatever and they report uh, grants and. Um, they change their themes every couple of years because of the science moves so fast. And so they are, you know, they're following the science. And the NIH in 2015 put a funding moratorium on blastocyst complementation research. That was what that was all about. And um, ELSI had in their call for proposals an interest in new biotechnologies. And they had a whole list of stuff, genetic engineering, blah, blah, blah. And Chimera was listed. So that was how we got into the space to look at. And they want to talk about oversight of new biotechnology. So that's how we framed our project. At the, so blastocyst complementation research with the goal of getting organs is one way of getting not as a one novel technology for organs. My other NIH funded project on xenotransplantation, which is actually, as you kind of alluded to, creating genetically modified pigs, knocking out lots of things and knocking in some human genes to create human compatible organs is much faster down the road and that project that I'm doing um, is moving really fast because we're looking at the ethical issues with that. That's gonna happen much sooner than organs from pigs that have been developed through blastocyst complementation. There are clinical trials that are gonna happen real soon with xenotransplant, with organs from genetically modified pigs. The other stuff that's going on is, you're right, there are, there are all mice now, to my understanding, that are used in research are quote humanized. That is, they their whole cellular structure that the scientists are looking at are human-based cells. You can buy them at Jackson Laboratory in Connecticut, <laughs> and there are probably other places, but that's the big lab. Um, there's a whole line of neurological research that's being proposed, and some already developed. And a lot of it, you're absolutely right. A lot of it is industry-funded, and it's hard to find that information because it's industry-funded. Um, that are using what are what are called transgene or transgenetic animals. I have my own personal views about the language. I personally believe that the language that's been developed by federal funders and some folks in that world are trying to carve out transgenetic from chimeric, from organoid, from other things. And I believe there are really, this is my personal view, there are funding and policy reasons why they've done that. My personal view is changing non-human animals to be more biologically cell-based like humans is kind of the same thing. Now, I'm not a scientist and a scientist might say I'm off base and you're wrong. Nonetheless, you're absolutely right. Um, this research is moving really fast in different domains and the genetically modified animal non-human animal research to develop disease models for neurological diseases of humans and absolutely immunology and other biologics absolutely is going on. You know, we, were, we only carved out one piece because of the call for proposals, but I agree there's a lot more work that can be done and these kind of intersecting, Interesting question. you know, cross-secting areas of research.
I hope I responded in a way that addressed your points. You did. Thank you. Sorry, I was muted. Um, we have a couple more questions in the chat. Rachel Nels says, my general impression is that the welfare regulations are inadequate and or insufficiently monitored. Did your research identify specific needs for the oversight committees you, you suggested? And can you speak to this? Thank you. Um, I actually, again, my personal view, uh, many in my group would not, maybe not agree, but I agree. Um, we are, our empirical part of the grant was only, of the project was only to do interviews with a selected number. You know, we can't do that much empirical work in three years. Part of it's a funding issue and part of it's a timing issue. And again, because the grant was about oversight and governance, we, we asked specific questions. But um, I did a lot of research before we did this proposal. And I, I, don't, I don't follow the animal research world that much because it's not kind of, I've been into other biotechnologies, but you know, I did have to do it for this proposal. And um, uh, the real gap in the United States, not so much in the UK, but um, is really good empirical evidence about what's going on with regulation of animal research non-human animal research. It's hard to get funding to do that research. Um, it's hard to get funding to do that research with regard to human subjects research. The journal I publish publishes a lot of articles um, that are empirical based. They interview members of institutional review boards. They interview participants in lots of different kinds of studies with humans. They interview people who might be participants. Um, there's much more empirical work in the human subjects research arena than in the non-human animal subjects research arena about what's happening at the oversight level. And again, part of that is a funding issue. It's really hard to get that funding in the human research arena. I've tried and I've gotten some, but it's hard. Um, so I absolutely agree with you. Because we don't have the empirical evidence doesn't mean the situation is bad, but we don't have good empirical evidence. And um, I think that's a real mistake. And there are a lot of historical reasons why we don't, partly because of um, institutions and researchers have been fearful over the years about um, complaints and sometimes threats of violence in terms of animal research. Um, and it's just hard to do. I'm not making excuses for it, but I, you know, I, I agree with you. We, we really do need much better empirical evidence about what's going on. And our argument about chimeric research being fundamentally research with non-human animals is a part of a way to get into that space and say, we need more information. We need more discussion and dialogue with these groups that are doing this research because we really don't know what it's going to mean down the road as the research progresses. Thank you. Um, okay, the next question is from Rebecca Walker, and she says, animal researchers I've spoken with generally feel there is too much regulatory burden in their work. Common refrain is that there is more regulatory burden with animal than with human research. Was there worry from the animal scientist on your expert panel about the additional oversight enhancements that are recommended in your project? Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for that question. <laughs> um, uh, in general, um, I don't want to speak for the folks, and we've had these meetings several years ago, but in general, I would say the institutional leaders in stem cell research oversight and human subjects research oversight and animal research oversight all alluded to the, you know, the issue that always comes up at their institutions from various sources, you know, committee members and scientists alike, 
you know, we got all these regulations we have to deal with. Um, I think it is an empirical question whether or not the regulations are more burdensome in the research human subjects or the animal research context. As you know, many people in the animal studies world um, actually argue that there is not sufficient oversight of non-human animals as research subjects in the way there is with human research subjects. So that's an ongoing debate, which we actually flag in the report. We don't go into it in detail. Um, so you're right. Um, uh, researchers always um, you know, raise issues about burden and um, it's an important issue, but I don't know, I don't know, maybe you have some empirical data about um, you know, the issue of burden and, and research with humans versus non-human animals. Um, not specifically in that comparative sense, just that, just the, the empirical evidence I have is that animal researchers think the oversight is really strong, just fine, and please don't give us any more. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> so, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, we got that. And I, I would, I've done research with, as you have too, with um, scientists who do research with humans and, and institutional review, review boards, and they often say the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, that's an important point, but, you know, one of the issues I think going forward with all of this kind of research that we've talked about today, genetics and, and human stem cells, is, you know, what is, what is it actually that we're trying to oversee? And it might be true that maybe in some areas it's, you know, it's too heavy and you don't need that much. And that's what the common rule did. It changed some of, you know, for the human research, it carved out some stuff that people said, really don't need this much regulatory burden for this area, but we might need more in other areas. And I think that's a legitimate question and conversation to have. Okay. Um... The next question is from Jason Delborn, and he says, did your committee identify types of research that is overregulated? I think this um, with too much expensive and time-consuming oversight and or types of research that raise such problematic ethical questions that they should be off the table, either absolutely or by federal funding? Or was your committee not asked to consider these types of boundaries? Hi, Jason. Um, we didn't really consider those boundaries. My, you know, the way I responded to Rebecca is how that came up. Yeah, we weren't we weren't looking specifically at the nature of the regulations and um, what that meant. Um, and we didn't even look specifically because it wasn't really in the nature of the project to look at um, specifically the NIH regulatory, you know, requirements for research with human stem cells. I mean, it is a limitation of the project. Okay, and I think this might end up being our final question. It's from Sophia Salas and she, she asked, what about reproductive issues with this human chimeric, with the human chimeric animals? Are there special considerations to avoid them to reproduce? I think um, she's, yeah, asking about breeding. Of yeah, there are prohibitions on breeding. All of the rec recommendations and the NIH guidelines prevent uh, or prohibit the kind of research where you would be breeding animals um, in a way that would be problematic. Yes. Okay. Well, we are approaching the hour. So if everyone can help me thank uh, Dr. Maschke, this has been really interesting. Um, thank you so much for sharing um, your expertise with us. And thank you everyone for the really insightful questions. Yes. Thank you for great questions. And thank you for moderating. <laughs> <laughs>
no problem. It helps a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, we, we've learned that. <laughs> we've learned that. So again, thank you. Next week, we will be meeting in person, only in person. We will not be online. We will be in the 1911 building, room 129, and John Allen and Rebecca Brown from NC State will be talking about their research on food science. So please join us in person next week. Um, and again, thank you so much, Karen, and thank, thank you everyone for attending. Um, it's it's been a good week. So see thank you next week. You.